0: Hello and welcome to Footnotes the Cicerone Podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah and I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: In this episode I'm talking to Dave Whitson, Camino expert and author of our new guidebook to the Via Podiensis. Hi Dave.
2: Hi Hannah. How
1: are you doing today?
2: Doing well, it's, uh, it's a warm time out in Portland, Oregon but... Uh... It'll be a beautiful day ahead, I think.
1: Due to the beauty of technology, we're chatting from opposite sides of the world, which is really lovely. And we're talking today about the Via Podiensis, and you've just come back from walking that, haven't you?
2: I have. I was walking with a group of high schoolers, and so we walked from Le puy en velay to actually just onto the Spanish side, onto Pamplona, so a little bit of the Camino Frances as well.
1: Yeah, that's a good place to start, actually. So where is the Via (laughs) Conviensis, and and what is it?
2: Most people, if you talk about the Camino, they think about the Camino Francés in Spain, which picks up in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port and crosses the Pyrenees and then goes on to Santiago de Compostela via Burgos-Leon and so on. And for pilgrims in the Middle Ages, they, of course, would start from their front door. And then from their front door, they would consolidate on more established routes along the way. And in France, there were four major routes that kind of emerged as pilgrims made their way to Santiago de Compostela. You know, there's one that goes from Paris and one from Vézelay and one from Arles. And then there's this route from Le Puy-en-Velay. And it is, of the four, the one that has been the most thoroughly redeveloped. In recent decades. So it's the one that has the most extensive infrastructure, the largest number of pilgrims, maybe the best walking, depending on who you ask, just because so much of it goes through rural parts of France. So it, you have a, a good amount of footpaths and unpaved walking terrain and beautiful scenery. And so it's generally going through southern France, to through southwest France, And then it ultimately intersects the Camino Francais in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port. So you can continue along and make it a a nice, you know, 1600 kilometer walk if you're so inclined all the way to Santiago.
1: Yeah, because that, I mean, you said it before, people used to walk it just from their door and they were just Mm -hmm. trying to get to Santiago de Compostela. So there is a whole network of Caminos across Europe. There's just tons and tons and tons of them. It's interesting when people say, I'm going to go and do the Camino. And actually, <laughs> they do tend to mean the section of the Camino Frances, maybe not even all of the Camino Frances. But there are places all over that you can pick up the Camino. This one is the French section and it has a couple of other names as well doesn't it
2: it does that's one of the things that makes coming up with a book title really tricky because there's so many different root names that you can go with so the first starting point is that you know in france it's not the camino de santiago it's the chemin Saint jacques and then from there you know the Via Podiensis is one of the names associated with it but you're just as likely to see gr65 and you know the GR routes are the long distance walking routes all across Europe. And so you, they, you know, many of them have a number associated with them. And so the GR65 is the number associated with the Lepuy route. And then, as I just said, you'll often hear it referred to simply as the Lepuy route, uh, because it starts in lepuy en Valais And so all of those names are roughly interchangeable. They all mean essentially the same thing. And I suspect that maybe the GR65 is the is the most common, but they're all used in common parlance.
1: It took me a while to get my head around it, working with all these guidebooks and saying, "Okay, so the Camino Frances it's not in France," and <laughs> the Chemin de Saint Jacques is the Way of Saint James.
2: Yep.
1: <laughs> and because it's Saint Jacques, not Saint James, and it can yeah, it can be a, a model. This is the section that we're talking about, and you did say kindly depending on who you ask you think it's the best walking now this is your guidebook so i guess we are asking you so so that's fine you can say that so what is it that you think about this route that is really special as a camino
2: it offers a window into french village life that is really special it's easy to exaggerate the significance of the label because it's you know it's a tourism thing but there are a lot of villages that have the distinction of most beautiful village in France, and a number of them are all along this route. And so you see one after another these amazingly preserved French villages that have, you know, they, they really do look 800 years old, like they would have if you had been a medieval pilgrim passing through. And and I think that that is a starting point. That's the one of the lovely things. I do enjoy walking through really large towns and cities sometimes. It is a highlight to walk through Burgos or León on the Camino Francés, but on this route, it is exceptionally rare that you pass through a town that has 10,000 people in it. It only happens a handful of times. So it's far, far more common that you are walking through places with a thousand or fewer people. And so it's quiet, it's peaceful, it's beautiful countryside. And it is just this nonstop sequence of stunning villages. Along with that, I think one of the biggest distinctions between France and Spain is the kind of accommodation that you experience in France and the kind of hospitality. I have to be careful here, you know. I think for a lot of people walking in Spain, the the albergues and the hosts that you have are a a huge part of the experience, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm saying anything detrimental about that. But the standards in France are different, and so in France you're staying in gites de tap, which are basically just like small walkers hostels. Generally, they have somewhere around ten to twenty beds. And if you want, you can also request Demi Pension, where the dinner and the breakfast is provided by your host. And it's a tremendous highlight because you have a lot of times hosts who are using locally grown ingredients, local recipes. And so it's a window into the culture through the cuisine and through hosts who are just really around you a lot and invested in your stay and um, willing to spend time with you in a way that can be harder in Spain just because there are so many pilgrims coming through. And so I think that there's a, a level of of intimacy and care that you can get while walking on the route in France that can be harder to get in Spain.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's reasonable. I mean, we've come up against that a lot in the podcast. We're, we're forever saying to people, if you can only do one holiday this year, why should it be? your route and <laughs> and you know we expect that authors are going to think about their route as you said it doesn't mean that you're being detrimental about any of the others but you've got to yeah you, you've enjoyed it you're passionate about it it's okay for you to, to say <laughs> that um, and your point about it being so much busier on the Camino Frances is that I mean it, it gets a bit of a reputation for being busy and depending on your take it can be part of the experience or it can be a slight downside, depending on yeah, your take. But do you appreciate the, the quieter Camino?
2: Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. As you said, this is going to be a matter of perspective, because for some people, they might find that walking in France would be too quiet, you know, that they, they like having a larger group of pilgrims and particularly a larger group of English-speaking pilgrims around them. And so in France, you're going to have a smaller group of pilgrims and there's a greater likelihood that they are going to be primarily French-speaking, although in my experience, many of them you know, have some English to draw upon. So for some, that might not be ideal. For me, it's fantastic. It's quiet, it's relaxed, but there's enough of a pilgrim community so that you always feel like you're, you're seeing some of the same people from day to day. So when we were just walking there over the summer, we would routinely see, especially in the first half of the walk, the same 20 people or so, by the end, it, it slims down so that maybe you're seeing 10, 15 people a bit more consistently. There are a lot of French walkers who really, really love the first part of this, who do it without any claim to pilgrimage or anything else. It's just, it's a stunningly beautiful walk. And so they'll walk from Le puy en to Conk. And then after Conk, the numbers drop off and at that point, you are you basically only have the people around who are, you know, self-identifying as pilgrims who are walking with the intent of at least eventually going to Santiago de Compostela.
1: So how long does this section take?
2: It depends, of course, entirely on, on how far people are comfortable walking on a daily basis. But four to five weeks is a pretty reasonable ballpark. Some will do it in six or seven and really just enjoy um, the experiences along the way, the hospitality you know, break up the walk a little bit more, but pretty common for it to be a four to five week thing. And there's obviously some uh, differences of opinion about how strenuous it is in comparison to the Camino Frances. I find that on the whole, it's a little bit easier, but the, you know, the first few days can be a little bit harder of an entry point for people. The second day in particular has a big down and a big up, but on the whole, I find that it's pretty comfortable walking, it doesn't have a lot of, you know, super strenuous big ups, big downs. And instead, it's uh, a lot of rolling hills and countryside, especially in the second half of it, where it, it flattens out considerably. So the hardest parts are earlier on. And then by the end, it's, um, it's pretty flat until you finally hit the Pyrenees.
1: And um, is there a common two-week chunk that people do?
2: The first two weeks. As I said, the, the walk from the puy en velay to Conk, is famous in France. It is stunningly beautiful. You, have, you start in the Valais, um and then you work your way into the Aubrac Plateau, which is a higher elevation, open plateau area, uh, <laughs> gorgeous cows, um, just endless views. And then you descend down to the Lot Valley, past villages like Espalion and Estang, and then eventually you end up in Conques, which is a tremendously famous monastic town just nestled in the in a in a small river gorge and so from that point a lot of people will go home but what i think you know and, and you could do that in in nine or ten days and so what i always tell people is if you have like just a little over two weeks you start in the and you walk to caor um, and you do the you go through the Sele river valley because you have different ways that you can go from Fijac to caor which are two of the bigger towns if you can tack on the the Sele River Valley, uh, which is one of the most beautiful places I've walked anywhere, it's it's the cover shot on the book. You're going to have an absolutely brilliant two weeks of walking that I would put up there with any two week stretch of pilgrimage walking anywhere.
1: Wow! And you've done a lot of walking, so that
2: is quite a claim. There's some really nice two-week stretches of walking. And I think about the first week of the Camino del Norte. I think about the Alps and the Apennines and, of course, Tuscany and the Via Francigena. Like, I mean, there are rivals out there. I can't say with absolute definitiveness that that is the case, but I have advised people to go out there and they have come back uh, after that two-week jaunt very satisfied.
1: After that two weeks, after... Conk. how is the infrastructure is, is there enough to keep you going as a pilgrim
2: yeah so it's it's nine to ten days to conch and then you'd, you'd go a little further to get into the selle valley after that it's 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 still fine yeah um and in some ways it's it's one of those things where it's certainly there's less accommodation there's also many fewer walkers <laughs> <laughs> right. So it kind of it kind of averages out. So um, and in a lot of ways, it's much more relaxed at that point. You know, there's the eternal debate about whether you make reservations or don't make reservations. And in France, there's a little bit more of a custom of booking maybe one day ahead, just so that your host knows how many people, how many mouths to feed, you know, so that they can have enough uh, ingredients. They can prepare the right amount of food. So there's a little bit more of a custom there of booking a day or so ahead. But generally, the advice I give people is that when you're walking from La to Conque, if you care about where you stay, then, you know, it makes sense to book in advance. And after Conch, it becomes much more relaxed, because the competition drops off considerably. And you have still a good enough number of options for it not to be a problem. And there are options not just in the towns that happen to be where the stages end in the guidebook. There's accommodation all along the way. So it's, really easy to break the walk up into smaller chunks if that's important or longer chunks. And, you know, if the goal is to not stay in the, the main towns or villages along the way, there are lots of other options.
1: Yeah. We, I make this point actually almost every episode of the podcast. I think that our guidebooks are a starting point and it's, you know, it's a suggested itinerary from you as an expert in in that route. And sometimes there will be stages where you just say to someone, there, there is no accommodation you have to stay in this town you know but but if there is accommodation then that's made clear and you can you can really make it your own trip so if you if you know that you're a much faster walker or a much slower walker then you can break it up accordingly which yeah, is, yeah. I, there's
2: there is there's a subsection of guidebook readers who who think that the the author is trying to impose a specific itinerary on them and makes me sad so, um, yeah, I, I have never followed the exact itinerary in the book when I walk, right? Like, of course not. Every, every walk, you're going to have your own particular needs and circumstances. So I, I, I do find that it is a helpful organizational device. Like when I am reading and consuming guidebooks, I prefer that it be broken up into stages, even knowing that I'm not going to follow them, just because it gives you bite-sized chunks in the guidebook, makes it a little bit easier to process than just one sprawling list of towns. I worry about people being, especially people who are new and not being entirely confident and self-assured yet, feeling like they are locked in. So I'm glad you bring that up in every episode. <laughs> it can't be stated enough, right? Like walk your own walk, stay where you want to stay, walk as far as you want to walk.
1: Yeah, yeah. Use the guidebook for for whatever you need it for. But yeah, make your own plans. Yeah. Okay. Another thing that we talk about often with the Caminos is the religious aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the, the Camino, uh, the Camino Frances or the Del Norte, you, you get many people walking it who are not walking it for faith purposes, but they're walking it for just a, a meaningful experience or a spiritual experience or, or just a nice walk. And then obviously there are the pilgrims that are walking it because of that reason. What's that like in the on the Via Podiensis?
2: I'd say it's very similar. That you have people with all kinds of different motivations some of whom manifest their, their faith in very specific ways, others who are clearly, you know, exploring. And the infrastructure can accommodate all of them. So there's, there's not some heightened expectation of what people are bringing to the route. I think the vast majority of people do go to a morning mass in Le Puy-en-Valais when they start to kick off the walk in part because it's it's one of the easiest ways to get the pilgrim passport is uh, going to their their bookstore immediately after that morning pilgrim mass and you know that's uh, even at that you they will make it very explicit that if you are not a catholic you can come up during communion you cross your arms you get You know, a non-denominational pilgrim blessing on the on the forehead, and uh, you know you're included in the process. So right from the start, Mm -hmm. there's a you know clear messaging that the route is open and and people are welcome. And then from there, you know, people who do want that deeper experience, there are some specific masses and services along the way that are are well loved among pilgrims. For example, evening vespers at the Old Abbey Church in Wasak where a group of nuns sing every day, a foot washing ceremony in Las Caban, which is just after Caoor. So there are there are you know rituals and traditions along the route that appeal to pilgrims, and then it's not on the the main branch of the Via Podiensis, but just off on one of the variants is Rocamadour, which is you know one of the the two or three most famous um, Catholic pilgrimage shrines in. In all of France. So um, it is possible for those who are, you know, spiritually motivated to weave that into their itinerary. We just did that when walking over, over this past summer. And, and so to fit that in. And and frankly, Lourdes is not far off route either. So people who are particularly motivated can weave that into their experience as well. So there are options for those who are religiously motivated to elevate that aspect of the walk. And then for those who are not religiously motivated, they'll have no trouble.
1: To be honest, the idea of nuns singing a, a ceremony sounds beautiful. I think that would be very moving, anyway. It's,
2: it's lovely, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, my my students were all there over the summer, and uh, I think they were they were surprised at how uh, how friendly the nuns are. You know, I think, I don't know if it's true for, for teenagers in other places. American teenagers were very suspicious of nuns. And uh, so uh, they they left there feeling like French nuns are pretty cool.
1: <laughs> and that's exactly what the French nuns wanted. <laughs> <laughs> are there any people who treat it as just a, a wine tour of France?
2: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And not just <laughs> not just wine. You know, like you go through uh, the town of Condome, which is the Armagnac capital. So you have... Uh, you have all kinds of different liqueurs along the way. People will bring all their own motivations to the trip, and I would say wine plus, you know, cuisine. You know that you you do have this, this glorious opportunity to experience French cuisine, and, and so sure, yeah, people bring all kinds of different motivations to the route, and uh, that's great, you know. And I think sometimes the people, you know, it's the funny. Th- I mean, this is the funny thing about pilgrimage, and maybe this is true about walks in general, but. I think it's certainly true in pilgrimage that the motivation that people think is drawing them to the walk is not always the thing that emerges for them over the course of the walk. So if if wine is what gets you in the door, fantastic. <laughs> um, I think you'll find more than wine along the way, but there's plenty of wine.
1: Yeah, that's a really nice way to think about it. It's like the, the carrot on the stick might be <laughs> might be wine, but you'd, you'd probably take more than that away from it. Yeah, you're right. Just explain a little bit about the, the passport. What what is that, and how does that work?
2: Yeah, so the the way the passport works is it's basically documentation of your walk. So it shows that you are in fact walking every step of the way, and it shows that by you getting stamps from the accommodation where you stay or from a cafe along the walk, or from a church, or from a tourism office. So they can all give you stamps. And some people are, you know, happy to just get one stamp a day at their jeet and call it good. Others really get into it and start hunting for stamps along the way. But the main thing is it documents your journey. It becomes a really lovely souvenir, a memento of all the, the places you pass through. And then if you are walking to Santiago de Compostela it does provide proof to the pilgrim office there that you have completed the walk, that you have completed it from point A to point B, and so then you can get the Compostela, the certificate that is awarded to those who complete the pilgrimage. And you know, for those walking all the way from France, they do have the optional distance certificate as well so that you could have it document that you had walked you know, however many hundreds and hundreds of kilometers from Le Puy-en-Valais, for uh, for those bragging rights.
1: Yeah, I would a million percent I would want a better certificate than the people who had done the last hundred kilometers of the <laughs> the Camino Frances. <laughs> I'd be like, hang on a minute, have you seen my passport? It's like three meters long.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, it is it is a funny thing. I, I think there are some people who hold the Compostela in, in, in high in in high esteem. But there are others where, like, it is the pilgrim passport that is the the document that matters. For that reason, right, that it it tells the story. It tells your story in a personal way that the you know the uniform Compostela doesn't. So I I do I do love the the you know they're they're colorful. Every stamp is a little different. Um, and it does tell that story in a way that is unique to you.
1: Yeah, I think they're really cute, the little stamps, and they've got the place names in and stuff, haven't they? So you can see, you know, exactly where you were and exactly who you spoke to and stuff. It, yeah. yeah, lovely. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I haven't asked about the Via Podiensis. I mean, there's there is a whole guidebook to it, so there is a little <laughs> bit more to it than than we've said. But I feel like we've uh, we've covered the main features.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's. It's you know we, we have somehow not talked about French pastries, so I have neglected that. but uh, <laughs> but I will say that one of the absolute best parts is you know you're it, like so many of these villages still have bakeries and you're you're walking through and uh, one or two times a day you can re, you know re-energize yourself with a, a couple of pastries. and uh, that's a major highlight as well. so it's 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 just you know I I find that it's every route has its virtues. And I wouldn't want to just do one single route, you know, endlessly. But I, you know, I didn't want to do a third. (laughs) I confess I didn't want to do a third guidebook. Um, But when I was talking to Sandy Brown uh, at one point, I said, I don't want to do a third guidebook, but I would do a guidebook on the Via Podiensis because I, I love walking there so much. And it's the one place I knew that I would be happy going back to again and again to update it and the thing that it has i think that other routes don't is it's the comfort read of of walks you know it is it is the place where you go and i think you immediately feel like this is a place that was made for walking the walking is just really good and the villages are really comfortable and welcoming and there are a lot of benches along the way, which you know is just like such a lovely little feature that's that's easy to miss. Uh, like, so you just get the sense that it is, it's, it's, it's like that. It's like the old sweater that you have, right? It is well worn, it is broken in, it is comfortable, and everything that you might want is just kind of there, spread out along the way. So it doesn't necessarily have like the epic high-level, like, crossing of the Alps challenge that, you know, something some routes sometimes do, although it has a couple of, you know, more strenuous days. But every day is just a lovely, comfortable walk that you can just enjoy. I think that that's a, a lovely thing to have in a walk.
1: I love that. Dave Whitson, Camino expert. Do this walk because it has benches and pastries.
2: <laughs> there we go. I mean, Why that's... didn't we put that? That should be on the cover. <laughs>
1: Job done. Uh, marketing <laughs> finished. <laughs> any Anything else to add about that?
2: I, the only other thing I would say is I think people get worked up about the language barrier in France in a way that they don't necessarily in other places. Um, it, it, like certainly not in Spain. They're way more comfortable with it in Spain. I, so I don't, I don't have any formal training in French you know i can tra- you know i have a good background in spanish some of it you know is accessible because of romance languages but french is really different it sounds really different in speech it's intimidating um it, it's not an issue though when it comes to actually being there there are a lot of hosts that speak some english as i said before a lot of french people especially younger french people have s- er- exposure to english in school they can They can break it out if you're in trouble. And in general, it's really easy to coordinate, you know, reservations in email using translators. That's what I do. I make reservations over email, never have to say a word in French. It all works out just fine. So, you know, it's it's totally manageable. Don't be psyched out by the French language component. You can do it. It's fine.
1: Yeah, you can get a long way with please, thank you, how to order a coffee and Google Translate or a beer yeah. or a wine, you know, your your favourite drink. Yeah, and The, pa- Google the pastries are all
2: in glass cases. You just have to point. It works great.
1: <laughs> have all my money and give me whatever pastries I can for this cash. <laughs> well, Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It always is. Thank you for psyching me up to do the Via Pulli and I will now get back to work and feel a bit sad. Um, but that's, <laughs> it's been really nice to talk to you. Yeah. And the guidebook is out now. Uh, so yeah, go get a
0: copy on the Cicerone website.
2: Fantastic. Thank you, Hannah.
0: All right. Thanks, Dave. I hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Footnotes the Cicerone podcast. I'd love to know what you think or if there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email live at cicerone.co.uk or leave a review on your podcast platform. You can follow or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss new episodes, or you can sign up to our newsletter for all our latest news, events and guidebooks. Visit cicerone.co.uk for further details. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, come and find us on our social channels. We're on all the main ones as at Cicerone Press, and we also have a Facebook group, Cicerone Connect, where you can meet and chat to other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.